0: and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is great but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church nevertheless let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. There is a very gentle attitude and a very candid and open uh, way of speaking that Paul has in all of his letters, but the letter to the church at Ephesus is especially tender and fatherly. As Paul is writing back to a congregation where he spent, as best we know, more time than he did anywhere else, Paul, even though he was a great missionary, the first Christian missionary, and established churches all over his world, Paul was in Ephesus probably for about three years. And as he ponders reports that have come from his co-workers and his knowledge of the past of the church at Ephesus, he writes as though a father talking to married children about the relationship of the husband and the wife. Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, was on a mission. And his mission first, as he stated it, was to restore wayward Israel to his father, Jehovah God. In the Old Testament, the same things are said about God and Israel that are said in the New Testament about Christ in the church. Israel was the bride of Jehovah. She was his special possession, a people to be loved and cherished as a husband does his wife. But Israel left Jehovah and wandered aimlessly as the book of Hosea and other prophets tell us about. And Christ stated that his first mission was to come and restore Israel to a proper relationship to Jehovah. Of course, it is all theory. It doesn't matter because it didn't happen. But Israel had the opportunity to receive the Messiah as the Messiah and follow him back into the fold, but they did not do it. And thus the emphasis of the mission of Christ became shifted from calling his father's bride back to himself into calling for his own self, a new bride, from among all peoples who would trust him, a spiritual Israel who would be uniquely his, And would be loved and cherished by him the way a husband does her wives, his wife. This, Christ and the church, is the perfect illustration of how a man is to function as a Christian husband. All that is said in these verses in Ephesians 5, all of these things that are suggested and taught are to be reflected in our homes. Gentlemen, it is a tall order for any one of us to love our families and to give ourselves for them in the same way that Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But that's our task. I remember my first acquaintance with family problems. I was 16, ordained, and a pastor. And the only home I ever knew anything about didn't have any trouble. I was the pastor of a mission. In a county in Arkansas that puts out more board feet of raw lumber than any other single town in the world. In that county there were about 5,000 illiterates. And one of the churches there had this mission for the express purpose of ministering and sharing the gospel among those people. To say that I was green would be to grossly understate the situation. One day as I was puddling around my little kingdom, which was an old house that had been moved to a piece of ground we owned near the sawmill walls had been knocked out in a couple of areas to make a place big enough for old pews to seat about 150 people. There were three or four other rooms and some attachments outside, but I thought it was the most glorious place of service that any preacher had ever had. One day as I was puddling around there playing janitor, which was one of my many functions, uh, a couple of my ladies came in. They were mother and daughter... And the father, the husband of the older woman, and the son-in-law were best friends. I didn't know very much about this, their situation. And so we sat down over in a corner. I didn't really have an office. We sat down over in the corner to talk. And the first thing that happened was that this lady, now I'll not call her name, but this lady reached into her purse and pulled out a 38 revolver, slammed it down in front of me, and said, "Carl and Sonny are about to drive us crazy. You've got a week to do something about them, or we're going to kill them." Now I confess to you that it wasn't near that funny that afternoon. You see, Carl and Sonny, I wouldn't really qualify them as alcoholics. They were drunks. And if you've ever been up and down the logging roads in southern Arkansas, there are more places for a still than probably per square mile than anywhere in America. Carl and Sonny worked in the mills. Occasionally they'd work on the side weekends and go out with a fellow that had a rig and, and a saw and a hammer. No chainsaw, just a saw and a hammer. And they'd split with him at $20 a cord for wood that they'd take and sell to the pulp mills. Now imagine between working very hard at labor anywhere from 40 to 60 hours a week, they made 80 or $90 a week. And they drank every bit of it in white lightning and anything else that was distilled and was strong enough they were both pretty nice guys but when they drank they were mean Carl would push his wife around yell at the kids and hit them occasionally Sonny would be bad to his wife but he never messed with his little boy well now back to the story at hand I really got upset about that and I learned how to pray quickly quickly I went to my daddy, and he started wringing his hands. He was a local pastor, but there wasn't anything he could do. I began to pray, and some other people I confided in began to pray. This was on about a Tuesday, I think, and the next Sunday night, to everybody's amazement, Carl and Sonny showed up at church. By the way, those were the funniest folks. They had not learned any of the traditional hang-ups that church people have. And without exception, in hot weather, because I guess the mission was cooler than it was at home, we had bigger crowds on Sunday night every time than we did on Sunday morning. They were crowded and hanging in out the windows and stacked on top of each other. And I preached something. I don't even have any idea of what. During that invitation... Carl came down the aisle weeping, gave his heart to Christ and was saved. His life was immediately changed. Well, now Sonny had been saved as a boy, but he'd gotten away from him. And he was cold as ice and unreachable. He was somewhat perplexed and he had to drink alone from then on. He'd lost his buddy, but his heart was cold and he wasn't reached. I remember one day that fall, during fall I was only there on weekends. I was in college and was only home on the weekends. And I remember when the call came. We learned that Sonny's little boy, three or four, I think probably three, had been playing in the kitchen with his mother. She was cooking and everything turned around and he was on the floor and he was turning blue. In a matter of three minutes, he had just fallen over on the floor and died. I remember that afternoon, Sonny cradled that little face. And himself, because they could scarcely afford the casket, carried that little casket and laid it in the earth before it was covered. He was reached. His life was changed. But it was too late for that little boy to ever know anything about it. Gentlemen, do you realize the implications when we say that you are to relate yourself to your family the way that Jesus Christ relates himself to the church? It's a tall order. It's an impossible task. And yet Scripture would affirm that we are to do it and that living through us, Jesus Christ, will do it through us. I want to remind you, all of you, mothers and husbands alike, that you have not honored God when the church Crowds the family out of your life. Somewhere along the line, many fine Christian people have gotten the idea that they have a legitimate right to let their families go in the name of God. I want to tell you as a pastor who does everything I know to do to head an organization that is staffed by volunteers, that if it ever comes to a choice, your family comes first and not the church. Dwight L. Moody, one of the most powerful men who ever preached the gospel, was used of God to turn two continents back from ungodliness to Christianity. And yet one of Dwight L. Moody's sons died as an adult, lost, bitter against God because while his daddy had been out winning the world, his family was going to hell. B.H. Carroll is a name revered in my family and very close. My grandfather was in the first graduating class off Seminary Hill at our seminary in Fort Worth. B.H. Carroll in 1908 left the pastorate of the great First Baptist Church in Waco and started the seminary. And later under his leadership, it moved to Fort Worth. It has grown to be more than twice as big as any other theological institution in the world. B.H. Carroll lived in his old age to tell with a broken heart of the day when in his living room he sank to his knees and cried, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! As his son, who had been lost in the shuffle of his ministry, and he'd become an alcoholic, died of pneumonia. Why did they do that? What was wrong with Moody's son? What was wrong with Carol's son? God came first as they saw it. But in reality, God was not pleased that family had been sacrificed on an altar of Christian service. In this passage, there are five key words I want you to remember and to hang on to as we talk about the Christian husband relating to the family the same way that Jesus Christ relates to the church. You find the first concept in verse 25 and then down in verses 28 and 30. I've gathered these together because they deal with the same thing. He says, husband, love your wife the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands ought to love their wives as they love themselves for no one hates his own body but nourishes it and cherishes it because we are members of his body. And the word I want to use that I want you to remember is the word save. The word save. Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church in order to save the church. This is an amplification of verse 23. Paul comes back to talk about it again. In verse 23, he said, Christ is the head of the church, He being the Savior of the body. This passage amplifies that. What does he say? Love. Give. He says, when you love your wife, you're really loving yourself. I want to point out that if, the love Jesus Christ has for the church depended on the perfection or the worthiness of the church, there would be no love in the heart of God for the church. Christ loves us in spite of everything that we are, not because of what we are. And gentlemen, you have no right to pull away from your wife emotionally because she's not everything that she ought to be. Love is not conditioned on worthiness. Love, agape. There's six words that have a shade of meaning of love in the Greek language. The word agape is almost unique to Christianity. It is the God kind of love. And the way you would describe agape love is this. The more it is scorned, the faster it flows and the hotter it burns. It is love given without any thought of gain. Love given without any thought of return. And if you ever stop loving somebody, you never really love them in the first place. Amen? If you ever really stop loving somebody, you never love them in the first place. Not because of what they are do we love them, but because of what we are. You have no right to turn away from someone you love because they are not perfect. And remember this, you never love anybody because of what's in them. Did you know that? When you love somebody, it's not because of what's in them, it's because of what's in you. We love because of what we are, not because of what somebody else is. Now let us apply that to practical life. Whether it happens at home between a husband and wife, a parent and a child, in the church, and it happens so often in the church, if you don't love somebody, just realize that it's not their problem, it's your problem. You say, but I'm right. Who cares? But they're wrong. So what? Are you perfect? Well, when do I have a right? Well, I'm not really sure. But even after he was spit on, beaten, platted with a crown of thorns, whipped with a cat of nine tails, nailed to a cross, and dying, Jesus still loved the ones that did it. So after you've been crucified and risen from the dead, then you can begin to consider reacting in an unloving way to people who don't love you. But in the meantime, you need to realize that if you have an attitude problem, if you've been offended, if you've been let down, that is a carnal, sinful, baby Christian reaction. Because you don't love anybody because of what they are or what they do. If you love, you love because of what's in you. And the Scriptures tell us that we are to love others the way Jesus loves us and that we are to forgive others the way He forgives us. Jesus says, forgive others and I'll forgive you. But the unforgiving don't have forgiveness. Is that because God's mean? No. It's just because with an unforgiving, unloving attitude, you're not able to receive forgiveness from God. You don't love your wife or your husband or your children or your parents because of what they are, but because of what you are. And whatever the circumstance is, however bad it may be, whatever is happening, the first thing that anybody needs to do in that situation is to get their own life straight and begin to let God love the other person through them. That's the first thing because, you see, you're not accountable to God for what they are, for what their problems are, for what their sins are. You're accountable to God for yourself. There is nothing more sacred than the trust God has given a man in his family. Do not sacrifice your family on an altar of job or home, the kind of house you live in, on making a good living. Especially do not sacrifice your family on the altar of the church and blame it on God. God has given you the responsibility for your family and nothing is more important than that. I have known husbands whose homes seem to be coming apart who really didn't understand. And they, in talking it out and evaluating it, would come to realize that all of this time they've been saying, it's all for my family. Everything I do is for them. I want to take care of them. I want them to have good things. I want them to have plenty. I want them to have a nice home. And sometimes they come to realize that they have gotten wrapped up so much on the materialistic side of life that they've completely forgotten about the needs and the desires and the wants of the ones they love. It's all for them, but is it on your terms? You see, often we get the idea that we know best and we're so convinced of that attitude that we know best and we're going to do what's right for our families. We're going to do what makes that wife happy if it kills her. It may. It may. Remember what it's all about. Now I would say to you that no job on the earth is important enough. If it costs you your family, get rid of it. You can live in a tent if you have to. You can live in less house than you might want and drive an older car, but weigh those things and their importance against the importance of the family that God has entrusted to you. And ask yourself the question, is this the way that Jesus Christ relates to the church I preached this passage in Springfield about a year ago my associate there is a real smart aleck we had him uh, here in revival and you saw him he's always got an answer and he's a ready-witted kid and he spent a lot of time at the house and every time something would happen and I'd snap at Shelly or hit Retta, you know anything like that Dan would say, now, pastor, would Jesus treat the church that way? And it was all in good fun. But, fellas, you know, ask yourself every once in a while, would Jesus treat the church that way? Would he? The first and key word is the word save. Nothing else is as important as your family. And I want to remind you, as Bill Gothard says, I didn't like it when I heard it, but I thought it over. And I've looked at it in people's lives. And I've studied the Scriptures and I believe that he is right when he says that an unhappy woman is a public rebuke to her husband because her happiness is your responsibility. Fellas, God has made these women, almost every one of them, and if they're not that way, it's because we've trained them and taught them and forced them not to be that way. God has made them so if you're what God wants you to be, and you love them and love those kids and you're the spiritual leader and you're a godly man in your home, she's going to be happy whether you own half the world or not. You don't believe them, ask them. Ask them what they want worse. A full-time godly father or the things that money can buy. Ask them. An unhappy woman is a public rebuke to her husband and they're going to be happy if you and I measure up to what God wants us to be. And then notice in verse 26, Christ loved himself, gave himself for the church in order that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word. You are to lead your family. As you do, they will be strong, they will be clean, they will be shielded against temptation and they will begin to be what God wants them to be. God has set you up as a hedge between your family and the world, like an umbrella protecting them from the rains of life. And as you are what you ought to be, your family will be sanctified, set apart for God's service. Something else that Bill Gothard says that disturbs me, but I know that it's true. If you are everything that God wants you to be at your, in your home... The devil cannot get to your kids or your wife. Because you see, even the devil is forced to work through the chain of command that God has set up. And when your wife and children are vulnerable to the devil, it's because there's a chink in your armor or a hole in your umbrella. Christ loves loves the church and gave himself for it in order that he might sanctify them, that they might be set apart for God. I would remind you that you do not let the church or God become a rival to your family. Don't let it happen. Don't let them growing up with the attitude that God took daddy away from them. That's not true. That's never been true. God established the family on the sixth day of creation before he did anything else that has to do with human society. And in God's plan, it is still the key, the cornerstone of everything. Then in verse 27, save, sanctify, and the word doesn't occur in the text, but the thought is there. The word is spotless that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Provide more for your home than material things. No force on earth can destroy the influence of a godly home. No force on earth can undo the influence of a godly home that's not true. the Bible's no good. For the scriptures, say, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old. He will not. depart from it. But you know often in the providing of things and in religious activities, we, we leave out the things that are most important. Have you trained up your children in the way they should go? Perhaps? Perhaps not. It's not my business. I'm not the judge but I would suggest some minimum standards. Are you in the Word and in prayer every day with all of your children who are old enough to understand it? If you're not, then we can just stop talking right there because that's the number one thing. And if you haven't done that, nothing else you do is very important. Read Deuteronomy chapters 4 to 11. Make a a point just to glance through there and see what it says about what the home is supposed to do for the child. About the only acquaintance many children have growing up with a meaningful relationship to God's Word is at 9 o'clock on Saturday night when the parents make sure they study the Sunday school lesson for the next day. Friends, it's too late. It's too late for that. You would not think much of a parent who gave his child one meal a week and I think less. I realize often it's out of ignorance and it's not meant in a bad way and parents are consumed in trying to do other things but it is more damaging to your child to go without the Word of God than it is to go without food. Blameless, spotless, give them more than material things, sometimes even God Himself can't undo the damage that is done by a home that neglected basic spiritual things. Now I would remind you as parents that the schools and the church can't do it. I have yet, Now I'm not very old, I'll be 30 this, this month, but that covers 14 years in the ministry and the rest of the time in a pastor's home. And I have yet ever to know a parent that complained about the way the church handled their children, that handled their children very well themselves. An hour or two on Sunday morning or Sunday night, a little bit of time on Wednesday night, a few hours every day in the school, five days a week, nine months out of the year, cannot undo what's done at home, folks. Can't do it. And his parents... All of us need to accept our own responsibilities. All of us need to realize that we are accountable and resist the temptation to blame the school, to blame the church for the way that our children turn out. I've seen parents, their children get to be 16 to 20, 25 years old maybe, and they desperately cry out for help from the church, and that help is offered as effectively as we know how to offer it. And they become bitter against the church as though we could undo what they'd done all the life of that child. It'll never happen. And Father, it is your responsibility, not your wives. God has planted that responsibility for spiritual leadership, for training in the Word and prayer and Christian discipline. He's given that responsibility to you. And your wife cannot do it as effectively as you can, and God never intended for her to. No force can destroy the influence of a godly home. Then in verse 31, the word I have used is the word separate. Separate. Now it doesn't occur there, but what it does say is this. Here Paul quotes Jesus Christ. And what Jesus said that when a man and a woman love each other, they leave their families and they cleave, cling to each other, and the two of them become one. Now, the Jewish idea that God gave them of the family involves all the living generations. As a child of parents, if you're a Christian, your responsibilities to your parents continue as long as they live. But there comes a time in your life when the new family that is uniquely yours that God has given you becomes more important than anything else in the world. I hope it never happens to you. But if circumstances and people put you in a corner, I hope you remember that under God, your wife and your children, or wife, your husband, comes first ahead of your other family. What Jesus was saying is that a man leaves his mother and father, leaves them emotionally, emotionally gets away, cuts the cord, and emotionally clings, cleaves to the wife that God has given him. Do not sacrifice your marriage for mama. That doesn't please God. It's wrong. I would say to you as a wife and children, anywhere on the face of God's green earth, that God sends the head of that household, if God is in it, you'd better go. And you'd better go if God's not in it because your husband doesn't answer to you. He answers to God. Gentlemen, I would weigh a job opportunity. I would weigh a transfer. I would weigh it by the impact on my family, and I would, before I damaged those relationships, be sure that God was in it. Separate from every other concern in the world to first love and cherish the family that God has given you. And then down in chapter 6, in verse 4, Paul comes back to it, and the word that I have used here is the word shelter, the word shelter. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Psychology tells us, and it's evidenced in many people's lives, that children grow up with the same ideas about and the same relationship to God that they have to their father. Gentlemen, the message of Paul is this. Be sure that by the way you act and treat your family, your kids get the right idea from you about what God is like. It is a terribly demanding thing to realize that our little children as they grow up are going to relate to God in the same way that they relate to us. Do not discipline them in anger or they'll see God that way and they'll resent it. And when they can break the bow of your authority, they'll get as far away from God as they can get. Be reasonable. But at the same time, be firm. Be consistent. Be even-handed in discipline. And realize that if your child comes to resent God, it very likely has something to do with his relationship to you. Shelter them. I don't enjoy realizing that my four-year-old is going to have to find out some things about people and about the world that I just assumed she didn't know. And I plan to be there. I plan to help. I plan to guide her through the hurts as she grows up. But under God, I don't want her to learn those things from what her daddy's like. They'll relate to God in much the same way as they relate to you. Remember that as you react to other people. Teach your children to react in love and not in resentment and hostility. Now, I would tell you let go of anything, no matter what it is. Let go of anything the house, the job your own ambition, your own desires. Let go of any of it before you let go of your family. For unto God, it is the one thing that God has given you that is more important than anything else in life. How are we to relate to them? Save them from life and in life Sanctify, help them be spotless, separate from all other things that we love and shelter them from the hurts and the problems of life. Now I would leave you with a question. Do you as a Christian husband relate to your family the way that Jesus relates to the church? join me in prayer Father I thank you that your word is very open and very honest and very bold in declaring the truth I thank you for the fact that you do not leave us at the mercy of impossible demands but that you've made a way through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit to live within us and to do through us what you want us to do Lord honor the word Apply it. Forgive the inadequacy and the inability to speak and express the truth of this preacher. And may the Word bear fruits in our lives and in our homes in the days ahead. God, give us here families that are together, families that are wholeheartedly in love with you and with each other. Give us here a sense of priority that we would never sacrifice the most important thing you've given us for anything lesser. Open us. Show us our need. Bring commitment from our souls. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.